Good morning, church. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful to be able to gather. As this pandemic rolls on, Lord, and uh, the restrictions continue, we're so grateful that the weather here is so so temperate that we can meet outdoors and do almost everything, Lord, we always have. And thank you for the sweet spirit with which your people have gathered to worship you week after week, bearing their burdens, facing their fears, controlling their anger, Lord, and remembering that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Help us, Lord, by the way we behave today, not only in church, but in all of our lives, represent you well and show the world, including skeptics, including people who think we are fools to be here. May we, by our choices, by our behavior, by our words, especially by our attitude, Show them the goodness of your character. Show them, Lord, the difference you have made. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If Jesus hasn't disagreed with you in some time, I have bad news for you. You're not acting like his disciple. Several years ago, I entered a mentorship. A mentorship is a strange thing for a guy my age to embark upon, but I found in a seminary professor and a pastor someone who could teach me a lot. Uh, Hopefully you've seen some of the fruit of his labor. And after nearly 30 years in ministry myself, when our relationship began, I just wasn't accustomed to being told I was wrong and that I hadn't done it very well. See, the thing is, pastors get a false idea of how good their preaching is because the people who choose to listen to them love them, and I thank you for that. I've sat in countless sermons beside very happy church members who afterward tell me, wasn't that good? And my honest answer deep in my heart is, no, not really. (laughs) It wasn't very good at all. It was kind of boring. He lost me a couple times. I didn't agree with his main point. That favorable impression comes because the people in the pew have a relationship in a church family. They genuinely care for the person who's opening the Bible, and they see that pastor, that Bible teacher, through the eyes of love. And you do that for me day in, day out, week after week, and I thank you. Well, my mentor, he had no such obligations. He just wanted to help me get better at a few of the pastoring tasks that we were engaged So to say, no, no, that's all wrong. No, that's not right. You could do it this way and it would be better. It could be shorter. It could be longer. You could go deeper. That was actually one sermon, but it should have been three. You probably killed your congregation with that particular sermon. That was painful and I was unaccustomed to it. But because I kept submitting to it week after week, month after month, it helped me and it changed me. I still get a little pit in my stomach every time we have those meetings. That time has faded, but we still get together. I still ask questions. And I'm telling you all this because I'm convinced that in 2021 America, many Christians have grown so comfortable with their version of Jesus and what Jesus thinks and what Jesus says and does that in their practical experience, they haven't found him to be uncomfortable in a long, long time. 
And I want to tell you again, if it has been some time since you have been challenged by Jesus and read his words on the pages of Scripture and found a need for repentance or been provoked to sorrow or even anger that you don't understand why he would say and do such a thing or you have no idea how to obey him, let me humbly suggest to you as your fellow struggler and your fellow disciple that you're really, at least in these points, not following Jesus. You're more likely following yourself. You don't want to be a disciple of yourself because you can't save yourself. The only one who can save you is Jesus Christ the Lord. Why am I telling you all this? Because in Luke chapter 20, we began this long journey in Luke so long ago. And it couldn't be any more timely because Jesus is confronted now with a political question. And I don't know if you've noticed, politics has been among the topics of discussion for Americans for a little while. Have you noticed? Look with me in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, please. Jesus has asserted his authority in the triumphal entry. That has been very controversial People have come to uh, challenge him in, their author- in his authority. That's most of the chapter 20. He tells them a parable condemning the spiritual leadership of Israel, saying, though God has faithfully sent me after you have mistreated and killed the prophets he sent before me, God has now sent me in their place to save you, but you're going to add to your wickedness by murdering me. And I have news for you from your own scriptures, he told them, you're rejecting me, the cornerstone of everything God is doing. And I'm either going to save you or wreck you. That was last Sunday. That's Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And they heard it, and it upset them. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Put that in in your own language. What do they want to do to Jesus? Lay hands on him. Are they going to ordain him to ministry or something like that? What does this mean? They want to kill him. They got the point. They understood the parable that their spiritual leadership has been rejected by God and will soon come to an end, and the things that were written in the Scripture were not written for them but against them. And the only thing that's keeping them from murdering Jesus is what? His popularity. These are hypocrites of the worst kind. They believe they have a divine duty to act against this false teacher, but they won't do it because it will cost them their position, their popularity. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Can you imagine teaching and preaching and living under this kind of scrutiny? John chapter 2 says that Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he, was knew, he knew what was in their heart. Jesus is never caught unawares. He knows human nature quite well because he made human beings. He is the creator God. 
And now he knows that as the people crowd around him in these, his final days on earth, there are also spies in the crowd listening to every word. Have you ever been in a relationship where people are trying continually to catch you in some mistake? It's brutal. And that is Jesus' everyday experience. So these spies want to, we're told in verse 20, they want to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. In other words, they want to hand him over to Rome so that the Roman machinery that keeps Israel under its boot can now take care of him. Here's how they're going to do it. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. What do you think of it so far? I learned a long time ago to not listen to flattery. Almost without exception, the people who told me in the beginning that I was the greatest thing since sliced bread called me a devil a few years after that. Always be mindful to receive encouragement, but also be wary of flattery. These men are not with Jesus. Their heart is set against him. They lay it on thick with hyperbolic flattery. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, that doesn't look like much to you sitting on the pages of your Bible, but that's a question that can get you killed in Jesus' day. You see, one of the ways that Rome demonstrated its daily sovereignty over Israel was requiring citizens to pay a poll tax, P-O-L-L, not P-O-L-E, okay? In other words, they were required on a regular basis to check in financially with Rome and basically pay for the privilege of living in their own land. People hated this tax. Any of you love taxes? <laughs> Evidently not. You've chosen to live here, right? We've developed a tolerance for taxation in California. This is something utterly different. This isn't taxation to provide services. This isn't taxation to provide education and public safety. This is taxation designed to finance a bloodthirsty empire that will allow its subjects to live in peace so long as they do not try to upset the empire. If you try to do that, you'll be killed. Not so much imprisoned, so much as perhaps, if it goes well, beaten severely, left with scars and perhaps deformity and crippling for the rest of your life, but more likely Rome's favorite thing to do in this time to assert its authority over people who are seditious, because that's what is being talked about here. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Rome? The favorite thing that Rome is doing to seditious citizens who won't pay the tax is not send them a stern letter or pull their business license, but to crucify them. Crucifixion in the days of Jesus, astonishingly common, and so horrific, so cruel, so absolutely repugnant that the time in the day of Jesus, the day that Jesus lived in, people would refer to it by certain euphemisms to sort of soften the blow. 
It was a horrendous way to die. It was brutal in every way, including not only physically, but it was a public humiliation. And what Rome was saying with the crucifixion is, keep testing us and watch what happens. See this man dying here? He rose up against Rome. You try it, you'll be beside him. That is what is contained in this deadly little question in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And it's a great question. Hats off to the evil of these particular men. Because if Jesus says, yes, it is lawful, They are the authorities over you, and you should continue to honor them by subjecting yourself to their laws of taxation. The people that love him will leave him. Because even as they did it, even as they carried these coins daily on their person, no Jew loved it. They all hated it. Taking these coins out of their bags was a daily reminder that something had gone drastically wrong and that they, the people of God, had to live under the tyranny of pagans who had nothing but mockery and contempt for their faith, who only allowed their faith so long as it did not trouble Rome. And soon enough, in A.D. 70, just within a few decades after the death of Jesus, Rome will come in and destroy the city and profane the temple and, as Jesus said, not leave one stone upon another. This is a politically charged question. If Jesus says, yes, it is lawful, he's lost the people. If he says, no, we are the people of God, we will answer to God alone. We have no authority on this earth. Like Caesar, we answer to God. Then the machinery kicks in. Then the Roman guards come. Then he's handed over to the governor. Now he's a rebel and a seditionist. Now he's dead. The answer that Jesus gave is profound and simple and well-known. You already know, probably, if you've read your Bible much at all, you know exactly what Jesus is going to say and do. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, this is going to be an exceedingly short sermon. You may be right. You can hope so, but let's see just what Jesus said. Luke chapter 20, verse 24, show me a denarius. I'm sorry, verse 23, he perceived their craftiness. Jesus can't be flattered. He can't be tricked with your flattery. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. And a denarius is a simple Roman coin. Something they would, have care, they would have carried every day. It was actually a man's wages for a day's work. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, what did they say? Caesar's. And there's a lot in that. Because not only did it have Caesar's inscription... Not only did it have Caesar's name, this is what the coin actually said. The coin that they handed Jesus said this, bearing the name and the picture of the Roman emperor, it said, Tiberius Caesar. Listen, son of the divine Augustus. 
It had a picture of an emperor ascribing deity to that man's father. Beginning to understand why the Jews were so offended? Everything on that coin defied God. Everything on that coin defied God's law. That coin was literally blasphemous. And Rome said, not only only will this be the official coin of the realm, this is what you're going to use to pay us to finance our occupation of you. This is why Israel was so divided. This is why soon enough there will be rebellion. This is why one of Jesus' disciples was named and nicknamed a zealot. He is a political activist to the point of being a terrorist. There were some nationalist Jews in Jesus' day. Their favorite thing to do was to hide a small dagger on their person and in a crowd sneak up on a Roman official, slash his throat, and try to get away in the commotion. You've got every kind of political and religious alliance swirling around Israel, trying to make sense of life, trying to make sense of God, trying to make sense of his word, and now these religious authorities are trying to make sense of the one who claims to be his son. And they put Jesus in what they think is an either life-ending or ministry-killing dilemma. Side with Rome, lose your audience. Side with your audience and tell them that you answer to God alone (laughs) and we'll cheer while the Romans kill you. And they're going to do just that when it's actually time of the time of Jesus' own choosing because Jesus never went to the cross as a victim. He went to the cross as a willing sacrifice for your sins and mine. He chose the time, he set everything in motion, and these hypocrites will say to the authorities, we have no king, there is no authority for us except for Caesar, except for Rome. So much did they hate him, and so great was his love for you. Well, here's his answer. Show me a denarius, whose likeness, whose picture... And whose inscription does it bear? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, here's the famous answer, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You see the brilliance of it? He says, show me one of the coins. Whose image is this? Whose name is this? Oh, it's Caesar's. Well, it looks like this coin belongs to him. You should give it back to him. This hated coin, this dreadful money, you'd be better off without it. Give it back to this blasphemous emperor. You give to God the things that belong to God. And oh, this, poor, this poor group of spies, verse 26, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became what? Silent. End of sermon. No, not really. I want you to reflect in these politically turbulent times on what Jesus said. Because that is the standard for disciples. Even disciples who live under tyranny are always told, 
You give to the authorities what belong to the authorities, and you give to God what belongs to God. What exactly does that mean? Christians in cultures and nations very different from our hours, from ours far removed from our time, have spent their lives and sought the wisdom of God to answer that question in their context. I'm going to be specific, and if at any point I offend you, or you feel that I am saying something that is wrong, or fallacious, or unbiblical, or based in ignorance, because I can make a mistake on all of those fronts, please tell me. Send me an email. Send me a text message. And I would thank you if you didn't say, how dare you, but I would rather encourage you to ask, what did you mean by, okay, that's a, that's a much kinder way to ask a question. And here's why I'm talking to you about all this. The name of Jesus has always been used for political means. Throughout all of Christian history, as soon as there were enough Christians who became influential, secure, and a large enough group to be used for political purposes, someone has always thought to do so, including, no surprise, Rome. And the standard for Christians has always been that you will live in two kingdoms at once. You will live in the kingdom of this earth and the citizenship of your birth. And you will also live in the kingdom of God. And your task as a disciple of Jesus, as a person placed in a nation under laws and under authorities, is to give to the authorities what rightfully corresponds to them and to give to God what belongs to God. Here's one way to remember what Jesus meant. The coin bore the image of Caesar. You are made in the image of God and saved to grow in the image of Christ. So Caesar may collect all kinds of things, including your liberty and including your taxes, but you yourself belong to God. And Paul would say to the Romans of all churches in Romans chapter 12 to present themselves as what? Living sacrifices, not dead coinage, not assets that can be pushed across a table, but to be in daily surrender to God. And when you surrender yourself to God first and you give to God all that is his, namely yourself in your entirety, you will then be free and God will make it clear to you in your specific circumstances, in your time in history, in your own nation, what it means in your time to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Jesus, I think, is deliberately brief and cryptic. There is a wide array. There, is literally, there are literally endless ways in which Christians have sought to obey Jesus. And this might be one of the things that is a little bit offensive. In the last several months, at least the last six months, maybe longer, I have heard many Christians saying that if things don't go a certain way politically, it will be the end of Christianity in America. May I tell you, that is an insult to Christ. Do you realize how strong Jesus is? Do you realize, if I may, without as God is my witness, with no malice and no anger toward anybody, 
Do you have any idea how we look to Christians that are genuinely persecuted? I won't name them because this is going out online, but several months ago I met online, and it's amazing to me that we can do this from time to time, with people who live under genuine tyranny. And those pastors and those women said, Pastor, we see the news, we're praying for the United States, you really seem upset. And so many of them have been arrested. So many of them have had their belongings confiscated. On one occasion visiting them, one of the pastors was late to show up and the pastors organized a spontaneous prayer meeting because the daily danger there is if you see any Christian talking to a police officer, it may be because he's not going home. He may be going away on trumped up charges. So please, dear Christian, relax. Listen to your Lord saying, I'm aware of Caesar, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to give Caesar what belongs to him, and I want you to give me what belongs to me. And what belongs to, you, to Jesus, what belongs to God? We do. All of us. Say, so, well, that was quick. Let me do something I rarely do and move out of Luke and show you how one of the men in the crowd worked this out in his own time under the authority and under the penalties of Caesar. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 2. What Jesus has taught us so far is this. This is what it means to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to give to God what belongs to God. It means this, Christian, following Jesus means being an exemplary citizen on earth with an ultimate allegiance to heaven. That's the tension you have to live in. That in your time and in your day, if you are a Christian in any nation, including one as free and wonderful as this one is, you should be an exemplary citizen, the best kind of citizen that nation could ever have. Someone who does not put his allegiance and trust in human authorities, but respects them and honors them and does as they ask with very few exceptions. You are an exemplary citizen, but if pushed too far, your ultimate allegiance and your ultimate trust will be not in any authority, not in any candidate, not in any party, not in any earthly idea. Your ultimate allegiance will be to God who owns you through the death of his son. Make sense so far? Now listen to Peter work that out. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is one passage. I only have time for one passage. The other is in Romans 13. But let's listen to Peter since he almost certainly had to be there to listen to Jesus face these spies. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Listen, Christian. For this is the will of God. This is one of very few times in the New Testament where that phrase is used. It is exceedingly rare for the Bible to textually say word by word, this is the will of God. Another one is found in 1 Thessalonians where it says that the will of God is our sanctification, that we avoid sexual immorality. 
Okay? People are always asking, what is the will of God? It's the most common question that pastors are asked. And what people are almost always asking is a question of wisdom, not a question of morality. Should I take this job or that job? Marry this girl or that girl? Should I move? Should I not move? Almost always questions of wisdom. Some things are questions of moral obligation before God. This is one of those times. There are not nearly as many moral obligations as there are questions of wisdom. And I want you to hear what it says. 1 Peter 2 verse 15. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. What's it say? Honor the who? Who's the emperor at this time? Anybody remember? When Peter is writing, the emperor is Nero. Nero who will burn his city and blame the Christians. Nero, who will infamously kill Christians and light his gardens with their burning bodies. You still like following Jesus? This is hard. Peter's working out for you in a time of tyranny what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Here's the first thing he tells you. We pursue the common good, though the authorities may act wickedly. Yes, Jesus said, do pay the tax. Rome does much for us. There is a great deal of what Rome is doing that contributes to the common good. He didn't say all that, but it's implicit. The authorities in Jesus' day, like every reasonable Authority provides common good for the citizens. Rome, in the case of Rome, roads that remain to this day. Peace and freedom with a limit, so long as Rome itself was not challenged. Every once in a while, a Christian will ignore what Jesus said in Luke chapter 20 and say, my government has offended me so deeply that I will no longer pay taxes, and there's no sanction for that in the New Testament. Christians are to live as the very best of citizens on earth, remembering that according to Philippians 3 verse 20, their real citizenship is in heaven. You live briefly as a citizen of this earth, submitting to the authorities that God has established without consulting you sometimes. 1 Peter 2 verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So yes, be an exemplary citizen, a second principle from 1 Peter. We submit to authority because we, subject, because we subject ourselves to God. Look again at verse 13. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2 verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution.
I won't name names because I don't want you to fall down the YouTube rabbit hole. I won't name names because my own understanding of statements and videos and five-minute sound bites could be mistaken. There may be facts I don't know that make this less severe than it seems. But there are people and there are pastors among us who have so changed under the pressure of the pandemic and the political upheaval that they are offering a new litmus test for the Christian faith and saying, if you say or do this, you're not really a Christian. Or if you don't say or don't do this other thing, you're not really a Christian. It might be hyperbole. It might be merely for emphasis. But I think what the real danger is that they're adding to the gospel itself and making a political choice or a political activity identical to being a Christian at all. I want you to see what Peter said instead. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. They've flipped 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Peter said, because you belong to the Lord, because you are subject to the Lord, offer up honor, offer up tribute, pay taxes to human authorities, the very authorities that are persecuting you. Unless you think Peter is some kind of political science ivory tower academic, remember, it is this same Roman government that is going to kill Peter himself. And he was told that way back in the Gospel of John. Jesus told Peter that in the future, having denied him, Peter would continue to be faithful to Jesus until Peter himself was crucified. According to, Rome, according to church history, the Bible does not tell us this. Peter endured the very crucifixion that Jesus did, but according to church tradition and history, had one request, crucify me upside down, I'm not worthy to die in the way the Lord did. So to read 1 Peter chapter 2 in his context and say and hear Peter say, I know they're evil, subject yourself to them anyway. Honor these institutions, honor the emperor, honor the governor, because what God wants is for your good behavior to silence foolish people who don't know him. That's astonishing. It may really change the way you act and think. It might really change the things you put on Facebook. Just an idea. This is hard stuff. We submit to authority because we submit to God. In the worst political discourse I've heard coming from Christians, I don't criticize non-Christians because I can't possibly expect people who don't know Jesus to act like Jesus. Sometimes pastors get wound up and get really, really angry with people who deny the very existence and reality of God that they don't act as if God existed. Well, how could they? They need to be born again according to Jesus. Make sense so far? But if you claim to know him, to say that a measure of your Christian faithfulness is to disobey the authorities and to be rebellious, can't find it in 1 Peter chapter 2. I can't find it in Romans 13. Let me be specific. I attended a virtual conference a long time ago offered freely by a Christian attorney to Christian pastors. His advice was twofold. 
defy the government, preach on one of these two or three things because it will make it easier for me to defend you. And here's the capper. He said, there's too many of you, they can't arrest you all. Well, I've done a fair amount of prison ministry and jail ministry. The only people I've ever heard saying they can't arrest us all are criminals, not Christians. Peter said, because you love the Lord, because you submit to the Lord, honor the emperor. There is a limit. The limit of our obedience is when we are commanded to sin. There is a time when Peter himself will be a rebel. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and John, having preached a powerful sermon that brought thousands of people to faith in Christ, are brought before the very religious machinery that, command, that killed Jesus. Peter and John know their life is on the line. Here's how that went down in Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. The authorities said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. But Peter and the apostles answered, will you read that with me please? We must obey God rather than men. Why the rebellion? I thought we were supposed to honor the authorities. Yes, there's a limit. When the authorities command you not to believe in Christ, when the authorities command you not to name Christ, then, Peter says, that is sin. That endangers our soul, and that endangers the souls of people who desperately need to know who Jesus is. You'll have to arrest us. You'll have to kill us. And the emperors, the emperor eventually did just that. Let me humbly submit to you as a fellow struggler, as someone who has been watching this for nearly a year, that has been watching this actually gain steam, not for a year, but for the last 20 or 25 years. Many of the things in which pastors are binding the conscience of Christians and giving them obligations that represent their genuine faith have nothing to do with Jesus and his gospel and everything to do with the discomfort of Christians. You're commanded as a faithful follower of Jesus to be incredibly comfortable with discomfort. It was never meant to be easy. In human history, until the United States arrived, it wasn't easy. We've had it very, very easy for a very, very long time. I told you last Sunday, it's going to get harder. And the way you're going to demonstrate genuine discipleship is 1 Peter 2.15. This is the will of God that by doing what? What's it say there? By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Listen, live as people who are free. Now, that's quite a phrase coming from Peter because the people he was writing to, guess what? Weren't free. Not in any measure the way you and I are free. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Number three, a third guiding principle, allowing for all kinds of differences in the particulars. We need to remember, first of all, that accountability to government is not persecution by government. 
Please, 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 Christian, I'm telling you this as a former missionary and someone who stays in touch with missionaries every single week, including in very difficult places that I won't name on camera. Please stop using the word persecution until you're quite certain by historical and biblical standards it actually is. Please. This morning I got a report that one of our missionaries in one of the hot spots in the world where they go to church under armed guard provided by the government because deadly attacks are imminent every single Sunday went into Muslim regions and along with food to starving people gave out the gospel of John to 20,000 Muslim believers. That's Christianity. That's real faith. That's what it looks like to do good and silence the foolishness of ignorant people. That's what it looks like to use what limited freedom they have for the maximum good. When you're held accountable to government, it doesn't always mean that you're being persecuted by government. And we pastors, if I may, I know I'm being hard on pastors, please remember I am one. Three generations now. We pastors can be the most delicate flowers in God's garden. If I may, a very simple example. I've gotten my share of speeding tickets in my life. At no point did that have anything to do with my faith. It had everything to do with the fact that I was speeding. You don't get to act like a jerk in the name of Jesus and not expect some pushback. That's not persecution, it's accountability. That's living in the real world. Third and final guiding principle from Peter. We use our freedom for service, not self Verses 15 and through 17. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor how many people? Everyone. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Here's the killer sentence. Honor who? Notice the priorities. Notice the wisdom of the Word of God. What do you owe to everybody? Honor. Respect. I'm going to be specific, and this is where I run the risk of offense. And if you think I'm merely giving my opinion, I, seriously, I welcome the conversation. I have them all the time. If we don't stop posting mean-spirited, cruel, mocking things about people we disagree with politically, we can hardly expect them to love our Savior. You can't spend five or six days a week saying that the whole world is going to hell and you're quite happy about it because they deserve it, and then expect them to hear anything about the grace of Jesus Christ. Honor, Peter said, everyone. Love the brotherhood. That's different. I love you. That's why I'm telling you this. That's why I'm grateful that God and His providence, we started in the Gospel of Luke, I think, two years ago. I couldn't have timed it like this. Not that good. 
Actually, not good at all. Ask my mentor. Fear God. Look how wise the Word of God is. What do you owe to everyone, including people who find you contemptible? You owe them honor. They don't honor us. That's the point. We're Christians. If you give only to people what they give to you, you act like the whole world. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. If you only greet and love those who greet and love you, you're acting like the rest of the world. Where is Jesus seen? Where is the Christian difference seen when you love people who hate you? So Peter says, under this persecution, honor everyone and love one another. It is heartbreaking to me to hear that Christians in their families are no longer speaking because there is political division among them. And parents have stopped talking to kids and grandparents have stopped talking to grandkids because they have come to different conclusions politically. If they're starkly different, one of them is wrong, but if they're both Christians, what are they owed according to this verse? Love. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And because you have a right reverence for God, you are then free to do the hardest part in this whole verse in Peter's own time. You are free to honor the emperor. What's the point, Christian? Simply this, people who fear God are free to honor and serve others, even their enemies, which is exactly what Jesus said we were to do in Matthew chapter 5. I really am done now. I'm just going to give you the truth of this brief exchange that Jesus had with his enemies. And I'm going to ask you in the name of Jesus to work it out with him. If you have questions, if you have pushback, if you have dissonance with anything I've said, again, I welcome the conversation. I would ask you first only before you talk to me to sit quietly with an open Bible and begin with this assumption. Jesus may yet disagree with you. He's disagreed with me. I'm grateful that since all this started... We're a year into the pandemic and all of this upheaval before we came to this passage because I personally needed all of that time to process what was happening in my heart and what I see happening in families and what I see happening in our country. Jesus is the hope of this nation. He does not need any government's permission to remain the hope of souls. He went to live and die under tyranny so that people could be free and citizens of heaven regardless of what happens to them on earth. So please remember that following Jesus means being an exemplary citizen on earth. And sit quietly with him and reflect on your behavior, your Facebook posting. And I'm not aiming at any of you, by the way. Say, so I wonder if he's talking about me. No, if I was talking about you, I already would have. Some of you know when I see people going completely insane, I'll pull them aside and brother to brother, brother to sister say, come on, there's a better way. Let's follow Jesus together. 
I don't take cowardly aim at individuals in sermons. I'm just trying to explain to you, to the best of my understanding, what it might mean for us in this time in February 2021 to be exemplary citizens on earth and retain always, even at the cost of our freedom, even at the cost of our lives, if that's what it takes, and I don't believe that it will in our time, an ultimate allegiance to heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your father is not the slightest bit troubled. His son who died for you loves you perfectly. He has endless mercy and compassion for you. He has welcomed you as his son and daughter. Please go to the world and show them that love and show them that character so that they will know you not by your anger, but by the Savior's love. Let's pray. Jesus knit this church together in genuine discipleship and brotherhood and sisterhood with one another and allegiance to you. If there is anything I have said that is not from you, I pray that that would fade from people's memories or even better, Lord, that that would come to my attention so that I may correct it and more faithfully and perfectly follow you as your disciples. Father, thank you for your love for us. If there's a person here who doesn't know you, I pray that today they would, today would be the day they surrender their sin to you. They repent from the evil and the wickedness that has been in their heart, that their conscience tells you about, that they, that they know has kept them far from you, and that today they would turn to you and be saved. Father, we didn't expect these days, but by your sovereignty, these are the days we live in. Help us shine as lights in the dark world, in a dark world, in a twisted generation, as you told the Philippians. Help us remember our citizenship in heaven. And help us, even gulping hard and sweating about what it means and how we should do it, help us take to heart your words to give to Caesar what belongs to him and to give to you, Heavenly Father, what belongs to you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is not a sermon in particular that has announced the good news of Jesus, how he died for sinners, but maybe God has brought you to a point where you're finally ready to trust him as Savior. If you do, I pray that you'd let us know, that you would send a text message, that you'd send me an email that maybe the despair, the anger, the hopelessness, the uncertainty, the fear, whatever you've been going through, if God has used that to bring you to himself, we would love to know it. If you need prayer, there will be people waiting for you right over there. I'll just remind you, we have baptisms coming up. We have several people waiting to be baptized. If you would like to be among them, please let us know. And we have a church business meeting once a year. Today on Super Bowl Sunday is that day. I hope you'll come back. We hope to start that meeting at noon. God bless you. Thanks for coming. Love you. Bye-bye.